Good morning. I told you before about the university professor who um, had a glass jar, and he had some larger rocks, and he put three rocks in the jar. It's about all the large rocks that this jar could hold. And then he asked the class, okay, how many of you think this jar is full? And pretty much everybody in the class raised their hand. The jar is full. And then he took some gravel, and he poured the gravel into the glass jar, and the gravel occupied the space that the big rocks didn't occupy. And he filled it up so that the big rocks and the gravel, and then he topped that off, and he said, okay, now how many think this jar is full? And a few less raised their hand because they didn't know exactly what was happening. And so some of them said, yeah, I think so. Some of them didn't know what to think. And then he took sand, and he poured the sand in the glass jar. And the sand occupied the place, not occupied by the gravel or the big rocks. And they said, how many think this jar is full now? And at this point, people stopped raising their hand. And he ended up taking water. And then he poured water in the jar, and the water occupied the place that the sand and the gravel and the large rock didn't occupy. And then having done that, he said, so what's the moral? What's the, what's the point of this illustration? And he turned it in a, a unique way. If we hadn't put the three big rocks in first, there wouldn't have been room for them. Room would have been taken up by the gravel and the sand and the water. So if you have three rocks that you need to put in the glass jar, you put them in first. And that's kind of what we're looking at when we think about common causes. That there are so many things that we can become occupied with. If we don't put the main rocks in the jar with respect to our beliefs, then the room in our mind where we kind of conceive of what is it that God wants me to be thinking about? can be filled up with so many different things that if we don't purposefully put the most important things in, then there won't be any room for them. And as we think about common causes, we're going to think about three of them. Uh, we're going to think about communion, which is all of us united in some central beliefs that allow us to be connected to God. We call it communion is one mind. And community... And all these words are, they have the word calm in the beginning of them. Communion, community, commission. The word calm, it's with. So union with one another, united with one another, in mission with one another. Communion, community, and commission. And those are the three things that we're going to be focused on. These are things that are to unite us as Christians. They are big rocks that we're to put in the jar of our thoughts about him. Unity is a primary focus in the Bible. We talked last week about Jesus' last evening and the prayer that he offered to the Father, which we have recorded for us. And this is what he said, I am coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them, the disciples he was leaving behind, by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one, as we are one. And that's what we looked at last week. So Jesus' prayer is that the disciples and those who believe in him through their message, which includes us, that there might be an experience that as Jesus and the Father are one, 
we would experience that same kind of unity with God, that same type of connection with God. The unity is unique, as we looked last week, a one-of-a-kind unity, divine unity. It's not just unanimity. It's not just us sounding the same or uniformity. It's not acting the same. It's a unity that comes from being connected with God together. What is it that connects us to God together? And that's where the big rocks come from. Communion. What are the things that we are to think as Christians? Community. What are the things we're to do together as Christians to to build up our unity, as Randy talked about? And what are the things that we are to do into the world? Um, It takes this divine unity to convince the world that the Father sent the Son. Here's what Jesus said, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they, he's speaking of his disciples at the time, also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. And what Jesus then is preoccupied with, as he goes back to the Father, what he understands, the unity of those he leaves behind will either allow or disallow the world to understand that the Father sent Jesus into the world. So the thing that Jesus is really prioritizing and sees as the most important thing that he might secure before he goes back is the unity of those who are claimed claimed him as their savior and claim to be followers. Um, in the first century, Paul, along with Jesus, saw this as priority one. Unfortunately, from the very beginning, divisions in the early church were common. You would tend to think of the early church as like pristine water coming from a spring on top of a mountain. We tend to think that, boy, in the early church, in the early days, everybody was really united and everybody was in lockstep, and that's not the case. We see in 1 Corinthians, and we'll think about, we'll look at some things, Paul describes some passages that talk about some of the things the church struggled with in the midst of uniting things, that there were dividing concerns is what he writes. My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, another, I follow Cephas, still another, I follow Christ. Then he asks some questions. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? What was interesting, he he starts the letter, and there's a bunch of stuff happening in Corinth. We don't know exactly what happened, but one guy in the church, his stepmother was a priestess prostitute in one of the temples to one of their gods or goddesses. And apparently, something, this guy slept and had sexual relationships with his stepmother. And the church kind of thinks that's interesting. Um... They are using spiritual gifts selfishly. Communion is kind of laughable. What's happening in Corinth, the church is not in a real good state at this time. What's happening is that those who don't have to work, who have means, they're showing up to the communion services early. 
and they're getting the best food and they're getting loaded. And then those individuals who have to work, they come at the end of the workday and there's not much food left. They don't have much food to bring with them. And that's what communion is like. There are all kinds of issues that Paul could have dealt with as he starts out this letter. And it's intriguing, I think, and illuminating that the thing that he brings out first are the presence of divisions. That is an issue that really troubles him. When we talk about division, and again, it feels kind of awkward to me, because now, 2,000 years later, the church is in so many different pieces. And again, it's something that we're not going to be able to turn the clock back. You know what Paul ends up being really concerned about? The church is split into thirds. And that is unbelievably concerning to him. Some of Paul, some of Paul, some of Cephas. I've told you before that I, I, I googled Christian denominations and found that one source, again, Wikipedia, said there are 45,000 Christian denominations. 45,000. And so Paul's really concerned that the church is divided into thirds. And we are 15,000 times worse off now than he was then. We're not going to be able to turn the clock back. But it's interesting to catch the sense of how committed Jesus and Paul were to the unity of the church. We're not going to be able to turn the clock back. But let's think about what is it that divides churches? And let's think about what are some of the things that we could do and not do? that would allow an experience of unity to exist where we are. We're not going to be able to make the church go back to a time where it was a single representation. It's like trying to herd cats, which you agree it's not going to be. But let's think about then these passages and let's try to find something that relates to us that we could do. Um, what we find out is that Chloe is, when it talks about uh, from Chloe's household. Chloe was, was, one of, was a woman who had a house church, and that's the way church happened in those days. People gathered in living rooms of larger houses, so this woman named Chloe, she ended up dispatching news to Paul via someone that's in the church saying, Paul, we've got some problems here. Things are dividing up. Some people are claiming that they are identified with you or Apollos and Peter, there are divisions. Um, it, involved, it involves different house church allegiances. There's bragging rights based on who they were baptized by. So Paul baptized a few, Apollos baptized some, and Peter baptized others, and people are kind of having a pecking order based on who they were baptized by. So they're standing up and, boy, I'm really sorry that you were baptized by <coughs> Apollos. Excuse me. Uh, I was baptized by Paul. <laughs> and, and so that's what's going on and kind of creating a pecking order based on who they were baptized by. Um, we talked about baptism last week. And baptism is a ritual that it reflects some things about salvation. Now, we've been baptized in different ways. Baptism isn't really the thing. When you talk about baptism, it means to immerse, literally. So when you take a garment and you dip it into a dye, you're immersing, you're baptizing 
that garment. That's what baptism means. It's, and so what ends up happening, as we talked last week, is that if I take a white garment and I have a vat of purple dye, and I put the white garment into the purple dye, what's going to happen when I take the garment out? It's going to be purple, because what's true of the dye becomes true of what you immerse the garment into. So what happens when we believe in Jesus? It's we are baptized into Jesus, and what is true of Jesus becomes true of us, just as what's true of the cloth becomes true of the dye which you baptize the cloth into. Um, And what we talked about, it's kind of what unites all of us. What's true of Jesus becomes true of you, becomes true of you, becomes true of you, and becomes true of you. It becomes true of all of us when we believe in Jesus. Now, we've been baptized in different ways, and so I'm not pushing baptism, but just indicating why baptism is a wonderful ritual that expresses and reflects some very significant things. Because what's true of Jesus becomes true of we who believe in him. So, and as we said last week, is there anything Jesus could do to be any more loved by the Father? Can you think of anything he left out? If you are identified with Jesus, what's true of Jesus becomes true of you. Is there anything that you can do to be any more loved by the Father? No, you can't, because it based on what Jesus did, and it's already done. Jesus was close to the Father. We tend to think that we could get closer to God. If what's true of Jesus is true of you, can you get closer to God? If you are in Jesus and in the Father, can you get any closer to him? No, not really. Now, some of us feel far away. We don't pray as much as we ought. But the fact is, through faith in Christ, if what's true of Jesus is true of you, there's nothing you can do to be any closer to God. This is like a major thing that unites all Christians. The sense that you could get any closer is based on stuff that it really doesn't, it's not what baptism exists for. And that's what Paul is concerned about. It's a uniting ritual, and it had become a source of division. Paul writes, I am thankful that I didn't baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one could say that you were baptized into my name. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. See, it's not the rite of baptism. And when I talk about baptism, it's a wonderful ritual and rite, and something that we practice. But baptism isn't the thing. Belief in Jesus is the thing. When you hear the message and you understand the good news, when you believe it, that's the thing. And that belief causes God to relate to you the way he relates to his son. And for all of us, that puts us all in the same place. Um, When the wisdom and the message of the cross 
becomes eclipsed. And it can be eclipsed by a lot of different things. The central message, when it gets confused so that there aren't three major things that everyone focuses on, it becomes piecemeal. There's a zillion different things. What it describes is that when you rely on human wisdom rather than the message of the cross, look what it ends up saying, and it's really a surprising statement. It talks about, look at the last line, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. I want you to think about that. The cross of Christ emptied of power. The thing Jesus comes to do can no longer be done because the cross as a symbol has been emptied. And what it describes, that is what happens with Minor focuses and divisions. Again, it's hard to talk about because are we going to undo divisions? No, we can't. And again, what can we do? Um, Paul writes another letter to Christians in the neighboring area of Crete. And in Corinth, the issue seems to be some church leaders were being lifted up. I was baptized by Paul, or I was baptized by Peter, I was baptized by Apollos. In Crete, the opposite is happening. Leaders aren't being lifted up, they're being torn down. There's criticism and slander. Look what it says. It says, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities. And in the context, the rulers and authorities, it's probably not describing in this letter secular leaders, but sacred ones. It says in Titus 1.5, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. What Paul did when he came to an area, he would preach the message find individuals that he could leave in charge of the house churches that he established so that there was leadership in place. And apparently what's happening is that he needs to encourage the churches to pay attention to and be persuaded to follow the leaders that he has put in place. That's not happening. A lot of different leaders are coming, and and apparently they, in terms of, in order to try to get a footing, are kind of slamming one another. This one leader says, ah, I tell you what, don't listen to what he says. He, you know, can we talk? Let me tell you what happened. He did X, Y, Z, one, two, three, you know, in this slander is happening. And so they're talking about this person and talking about that person. What's happening is the church is splitting, 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 splitting. And Paul then, as he was in Corinth, so also in Crete, is really concerned about that. Uh, He says, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, which means to listen to. The word obedient here, it's to listen to, to, so that he wants people Just listen to what they say. You know, God gives us two ears and a mouth, one mouth, and just so use your two ears. Listen, listen. That's what he's trying to encourage them to do. He says to slander no one, to be peaceable, considerate, to show true humility toward all men. Um, 
to slander no one. Today, when we think of slander, slander we think of as saying something false about someone. It's slander if you say something that's not true, you didn't check it out, and that's slander. In the Bible, slander isn't just saying untrue statements. Slander literally is to speak against someone. And so slander in the Bible, even if there's something true about someone, to share that truth with somebody else is a means whereby things split. And that's one thing that when we think of what can we do, slander is one of those things in the Bible that is um, highlighted as a really important thing to practice. And it's difficult in our time. Again, I'm not pointing any kind of fingers, but let's just look at what in the world. Slander. Um, the word, again, the word translated slander means to speak against somebody. Apparently what they're happening is they're throwing some, they're throwing one another and some leaders under the bus. Um, it's not just false statements, it includes true statements that impugn, it might be true statements that impugn their character, but they're using it to kind of to split things up. When we split, speak against one another, and this is kind of one of the implications of what Paul says, when we speak of one another, against one another, we send another crack in the church. Another fracture, another split, another division. And in so doing, the cross becomes weaker and weaker and weaker and weaker and weaker and unable to fulfill the purpose. There's three things, three gates. I've seen this before. We've talked about it. Before you, we share something, I encourage us to Ask and answer three questions. If you're talking about somebody, another person who's a believer, and um, you're wondering, should I say this or not? Ask and answer three questions. Is it true? And do the work. Is it true? But if you answer that question, answer another one. Is it necessary? Do I really need to say this thing about that person? It might feel good, but is it necessary? us to do so. And the third question, is it kind? Is it true? Is it necessary? Is it kind? And if it's not true, or if it's true but not necessary, or true and necessary but not kind, don't say it. Don't text it. Don't post it. It feels like we can make a point that seems to strengthen things. I guess what Paul is saying here, and again, I'm I'm looking at this as you are, it doesn't really help matters from a vertical perspective. It hurts them. It disunites things. The cross is being emptied of power by divisions, by slandering others, apparently, by arguing and quarreling as well. Look what it says. 
Avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because they are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once and then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him. You may be sure that such a man is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. It says avoid controversies, discussions, quarrels about law. If there's a minor issue, it's not a rock. It's not one of the three rocks. It's, it's a minor thing. Uh, and the, what he's, Paul's is encouraging, um, don't argue about that. Don't argue. You know, there's arguments even about the way baptism should happen. Some of us were baptized by immersion. Some of us were baptized by sprinkling. <laughs> sprinkling. Can you imagine that? Somebody getting sprinkled. You know, it's what we end up doing is we end up harping on the manner of baptism, which is really beside the point, isn't it? It's not how you get baptized. It's what you believed and what you understand baptism symbolizes. It's about the belief. But what we end up doing is we end up arguing about the manner of baptism and that, and there's a zillion other things that we, that we end up disagreeing about. And what Paul says with respect to minor issues, don't argue about them. Because the rifts that they create are more powerful than any sort of win that we might feel we gain by convincing someone to see something our way. That's what Paul seems to be saying here. Um, If somebody wants you to weigh in on some minor point of law, be careful, don't join in. If somebody's trying to draw you into an argument about politics and church and say every believer who is anything should do, say, X, one, two, three, maybe don't weigh in. Well, again, if there's a friend that you know and you have a discussion, perhaps, but understand that the, the harm created by disunity might outweigh any, anything that possibly could be gained. Um, it says, warn a divisive person once, and then warn him a second time after that, have nothing to do with him. Let me tell you what a divisive person is. A divisive person, it comes from the Greek word, an irisus. An irisus. An irisus is the word from which we get the word heretic. In the early church, a heretic was not simply a person who believed wrong things about God or the Bible. That's the way we see a heretic. It's somebody who believes things that they shouldn't believe. In the early church, a heretic wasn't somebody who believed untrue things. It was a divisive person. A heretic was a person who took a minor Christian truth and magnified it out of all proportion in order to divide congregations. That's what a heretic was. And what Paul says, warn that type of person once. And then warn him a second time. Now, that that person is probably a biblical person who believes that, well, you know, I knew somebody who believed that there's no Bible to read except the King James. Okay, the King James is a decent version, has some antiquated English. I'm not going to fight about King James, but this person then believed it's the only Bible. That's, I think, the type of thing. And again, I'm not blowing up. You like the King James. You understand that, right? I'm not blowing up the King James Version. I am saying it's not the only version. And that it's not a better version and a more sanctified version than other versions. To to argue about that's the only version, that's the type 
of person Paul is talking about. Somebody who takes a minor truth, magnifies it out of all proportion in order to divide it. You know what Paul says about a person like that? Warn him once. You know, you're bringing up a bunch of stuff. Stop, please. Paul says, warn him a second time. And in that church at that time, what Paul says after that, have nothing to do with him. You may be sure that such a person is sinful and warped, they're self-condemned. It's natural to be divided. Natural to be divided. Happened very early. It's supernatural to be united. You know what we're going to look at over the next three? Well, you do. We're going to look at three rocks. Communion. What does it mean? What are the things that we should believe together? Community. What are the things that we should participate in together? Commission. What are some of the things that we should be doing in mission together? Communion. One mind. Community. One heart. Commission. One mouth. And one message. That's what we'll look at in the upcoming weeks. Stand. Let's stand for closing prayer. Now, Father, when we read something like this, we're, we're in such a different place. We can't go back to where Paul was at this time. It's, we live in a different age, different world. Um, there weren't versions of the Bible that everyone have. We have so many versions of the Bible, and there's so many different opinions about what's most important or what's vital. It's very difficult for us to understand and practice things that, that will end up creating unity because there's so much disunity and, and we, can't, we can't fix the rifts that have occurred. We can't get rid of denominations, but there are some things we can do. We can be respectful. We can try to move away from slander, not saying anything if it's not true or not necessary or if it's not kind. We can not weigh in on arguments that are based on minor beliefs. We can um, value unity and move towards it. Would you help us to continue to understand the things that we are to focus on? Common causes will allow us to be more united. In Jesus' name, amen.